Do you thirst in your heart? Do you thirst in your soul? Jesus says, come to me and drink. To the woman of Samaria, there in John chapter 4, as they're at Jacob's well, Jesus began to talk to her about living water. And he would say that if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, you'll never thirst again. But if you drink of this water, the water of the world, Jacob's well, you're going to be thirsty again. And you see, what can happen is, as we are thirsty, so many people go to the world to drink and drink and drink, and they're always thirsty in their hearts and in their souls. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. So we know that as we move into chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul, as he's writing to the Christians there at Corinth, he's been answering a question that we have seen at the beginning of chapter 8. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 deal with this question that the believers had concerning meat that had been offered to idols. Is it okay if we eat that meat and, and, and give it to other brothers and sisters that has been offered to a pagan idol? And so that was a question that had brought much debate there in the church at Corinth. And it was causing stumbling, bringing offense to some of the Christians, some hard feelings, some divisions. And the reason was, as we have discussed, but just so we understand what's going on here, that the Christians there at Corinth, remember 2,000 years ago, that the city of Corinth was characterized and marked by idolatry and immorality. That is, that a lot of people were involved in false worship, worshiping idols and the Greek gods and the Roman gods. So all throughout Corinth, there was these little temples that were set up that people could go and worship there and worship that idol that, that was they're dedicated to that false god, whatever it might be. And so as the worshiper would go, he would oftentimes, or she, would bring a sacrifice, an animal, and that animal would be their sacrifice and would be offered before that idol, and part of the meat of that animal would be given to the worshiper. Some of it would be given to the priest that was doing the sacrifice, but then some of it also would be sold at a meat market that you could find right there next to the idol. And so what the Christians were doing, they would go to the pagan idol uh, temple, and they would buy meat there, or they would actually eat there. And Paul would write in chapter 8, verse 10, what are you going to do, Christian, if another Christian sees you eating there at the pagan uh, temple? And you're going to stumble others is what's going to happen. So apparently there was some kind of sit-down restaurant or something where you could go and you could eat meat, and you could also go there and buy meat. You could bring it home, and it didn't bother you. It didn't bother you that that meat had been offered to an idol. Hey, I got a bargain on this meat. I know the meat's not contaminated. And that's what Paul began to give as a principle, that knowledge puffs up. You may have the knowledge that it's okay to eat that meat, that the idol is nothing, that the idol is nothing compared to God. There's only one true living God, and that is the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's where the problem is. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And many of the Christians there at Corinth, remember, they're young Christians here. They've only been Christians for a few years. 
many of them, if not most of them, came out of that pagan worship, that idol worship. And so they could not understand why a Christian would want to go to that pagan temple that it, that, and buy meat or eat meat that had been offered to an idol. And really what would stumble the Christians as well is if somebody went there and bought that meat, brought it home, and then they would serve it to another brother or sister, and they were being stumbled by that. Their faith was being defiled, as Paul would write in chapter 8. So they're asking questions. Is it okay for us as Christians to eat that meat that has been presented before a pagan idol? Is it okay to give it to brothers and sisters? And so even though today, as Paul was back then dealing with the specific issue of meat offered to idols, we don't deal with that specific issue today, do we? But here Paul is dealing with a, a more uh, general uh, question, or that is a general uh, area, and that is concerning our Christian liberty. You see, he would declare in chapter 6 that all things are lawful for me. And he's going to repeat that actually in chapter 10. And in that, he is declaring that you and I, we have freedom in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. And we do, don't we? But the thing for you and I to understand as a Christian, what is that liberty? What is that freedom? What does it mean for you and for me? You see, you and I, we have been set free, haven't we? We are free from the penalty of sin. As we've surrendered our hearts to Jesus Christ and understood the gospel message, the wonderful good news that Jesus Christ came and died for you and for me. He died for you specifically, me specifically, for our sins. The Son of God, because of his love for us, went to Calvary's cross. And as we surrendered our hearts to him, yes, Lord, I need the Savior of the world for forgiveness of sin, to have the hope of heaven, and to come in the right relationship with you, Father. And as we come in faith, a living faith in our hearts, we are saved. We're free from sin. We're free from the world. And as we believe he rose from the grave, we have that living hope that resides in our hearts, don't we? And so we are free from the world, but also in this life, we are free from the deception of the world and, and the bondage of sin and the um, junk of the world. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So what Paul has been telling us, inspired by the Spirit of God, in chapters 8 and 9, as we have seen, that even though we have been set free, we have liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, we need to use our freedom wisely, don't we? Because if we are not careful in the exercising of our liberty, we can find ourselves stumbling and offending the weaker brother or sister in the Lord. So that's why he said, knowledge puffs up. In the Corinthians, you know, the Greek mindset, they were all into wisdom, and they were all into knowing knowledge, and they would very much pride themselves on that. You guys, you're puffed up in the knowledge that you have, but here's the thing that you need to remember, that love edifies. And you may have the knowledge, knowing that that meat isn't contaminated as, as it's offered to an idol, but here's the thing you need to remember that out of sensitivity and love to the weaker brother and sister, you don't want to stumble their faith. You don't want to cause offense. And so that was the principle that he laid out there in chapter 8. And then as we moved into chapter 9, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, the apostle would use his own life as an illustration in the principle that he taught in chapter 8. 
And that is that Paul gave up his right to be supported in ministry. He says the other apostles, they are supported and, and they have certain rights that they take. But, but me and Barnabas, we have given up our right to be supported by you guys here in Corinth because we don't want to hinder the gospel. We don't want to hinder the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified going forth. So we've given up that important right because we, first of all, want to make sure that people are coming to the gospel. And so that's what we chose to do. And if we have chosen, and if I have chosen, remember Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half, and the church grew very quickly, but he made tents. He didn't receive support from the Corinthians. And he said, if I'm willing to give this up for the sake of the gospel, then you should be willing to give up eating meat offered to idols for the sake of the weaker brother or sister. So knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And so that's what he's been laying out, uh, that principle there for us to consider. And as we concluded chapter 9 last week, Paul showed us something that is extremely important that we as a Christian should know. That as he's saying to them, that a Christian should be willing to give up some things, even good things, for the sake of winning the race that God has set before us. Lest I be disqualified, he wrote as we finished the chapter. As we discussed last week, the scriptures liken you and me to being in a race. Paul, at the end of his life, he would say that I have finished my race. We know that the author of Hebrews would say in chapter 12, lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race that is set before us. Every single one of us that names the name of Jesus, we have a race that is set before us. And what Paul is saying is, is to run that race to win the prize. Now again, important for us to understand that he's not talking about salvation because salvation isn't a competition that we have to win, earn our way to heaven, win a prize to get to heaven. Salvation comes simply by believing in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for you and for me. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn salvation. It is a free gift from God as we come in faith. The scriptures is very, very clear on that. But here's the thing. Paul goes on to write, Jesus even talked about it, in our life, we have rewards that can be given to us in heaven when we go home to be with him. And Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that all of us are going to stand before the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, not to be judged for our sins. You see, Jesus took that judgment upon himself as he hung on Calvary's cross. But with that said, there are rewards to be given to us as we stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we saw, that all of our works are going to be tried by fire. So there's an imperishable crown that is ready for you and for me. So he says, run your way, race to win the prize. And if an athlete runs and trains and disciplines himself to wear a crown and receive a prize that will go away, that will burn up someday, that is perishable, how much more you and I as Christians should run the race, our spiritual race, to win an imperishable crown that is awaiting for you and for me? So he says, I'm temperate in all things. That is, I'm disciplined in my life. There are certain things that I will not do because I don't want to be stumbled. I don't want to be hindered in the race that is set before me. I don't want to be weighed down, as the author of Hebrews says. 
I want to lay all those things aside. I don't want to be disqualified. So Paul the Apostle talking about rewards that await for you and for me. And you see, a lot of Christians don't understand that. That there are rewards that are waiting for you and for me. There's a crowns that are waiting for you and me. We can do a study in the New Testament. It talks about different crowns that are mentioned there. And so now as we move into chapter 10, Paul's going to continue this thought. We're going to follow the flow of Paul the Apostle as he's going to now talk about the children of Israel. And what he's going to be doing is, is he's going to be talking about those things that hindered them in their walk as they journeyed through the wilderness. So let's begin to look at that. Chapter 10, verse 1. Again, we read, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. So Paul taking the Corinthian believers back to his fathers, that is the children of Israel, and their exit, or that is their exodus from Egypt into the wilderness. He writes that our fathers were under the cloud. Now why would Paul go back to and begin a discussion on something that happened 1,500 years before he wrote this letter? 3,500 years for you and for me. Why a discussion on the children of Israel and their exodus? Because as he has been discussing and all about our freedom in Christ. You are to run your race to win the prize. Don't be disqualified. So now, here are the children of Israel. They were set free. They had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And God set them free. They would come out of Egypt, and that generation that was set free ended up blowing it out there in the wilderness. They became disqualified because of their sin. And because of their disobedience and because of their unbelief, they did not enter into the promised land. They did not enter into God's rest. And so he says, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened out there in the wilderness so many years ago. So he's using them as an example of what can disqualify you in receiving what God has for you and for me in this life and in eternal life as we stand before him to receive those crowns and rewards. He says that you are under the cloud. He's making a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. Now on Wednesday nights, we've gone through the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy in the last year or so. So much of this is going to be a little bit of a review for some of you. But we know that as we were in Exodus chapter 13, after the death of the firstborn there in Egypt, that Pharaoh said, go, get out of Egypt. So out of an outstretched arm and mighty power, God brought the children of Israel out of their 400 years of bondage in Egypt. So in orderly ranks, they would leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness. And it says there that a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night would lead them. And in that, Exodus chapter 13 tells us that the presence of God went before them. So here was the presence of God, God leading them with that pillar of cloud as they passed through the cloud, it says. It would lead them through the wilderness and it would bring them as they began their exodus to the Red Sea and two mountain ranges on both sides. No other nation on earth had the presence of God with them except for the children of Israel. And so they would leave Egypt in orderly ranks and it was a blessing it was. The children of Israel having the pillar of cloud, fire, to guide them, to be a shelter for them. And understand that as a Christian, 
That's what God promises for us. That's what God desires for us to understand, that we have his guidance as we look to him. And we have his shelter and protection to be given to you and to me. Today, as a Christian, we have something better than the pillar of cloud. We can think as we read these stories of the Exodus, the the pillar of cloud, what an awesome sight that must have been, how neat that must have been for the children of Israel. You and I have something better to guide us, to give us wisdom, to direct us. The pillar of cloud, when it moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. When it went left, they, they went left. When it went right, they went right. God was leading them in that. And we think, oh, Lord, if I only had a little pillar of cloud that would lead me throughout the day or in decisions that need to be made. Here's the thing. We have something much better, and that is the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in our hearts, that's living in our hearts, speaking to us in that still, small voice as you and I are sensitive to listening to the voice of God. We have the canon of Scripture, the Word of God given to you and to me to give us wisdom and direction in our own lives. So you and I, as a Christian, God desires to direct us and to shelter and protect us, to know what His will is for our lives as we follow after Him. As we follow after Him, understand every single one of us, God desires to direct, to give us wisdom, to guide, to be a shelter as we abide under the shadow of His wings. Sometimes we can think, oh Lord, you want that for somebody else, but for me, yes, for you. That's the work he desires to do in your life. And so they passed through the cloud, and they would come and pass through the sea. We all know the story of Exodus chapter 14, that as they were backed up against the Red Sea, all of a sudden the Egyptian chariots were coming down and and going to do them in. And they cried out, and Moses would lift up his staff, and the sea would part, and they would cross on dry land. And then when the Egyptians pursued them, the seas uh, would come back, The walls of the sea recited, and it would drown the Egyptian army, and they were safe on the other side. Verse 2, we also read that as they passed through the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. As the children of Israel passed through the sea, it was an amazing picture of God's power and protection. It was also a picture of baptism. And here in verse 2, it reads that they were baptized unto Moses. That is, that they were identifying with their spiritual leader, Moses. We as Christians, as we come to Jesus Christ, we identify with our leader, that is the head, Jesus Christ, when we are baptized. So what baptism is about. As we have a baptism here in a couple weeks, those who are coming to be baptized are saved. They've given their hearts to Jesus Christ. And what they are declaring publicly is this, that I have given my heart to Jesus Christ. I identify with Jesus Christ. As I go under the waters, it symbolizes that the old man, the old woman is dead, that my sins are buried, I'm forgiven. And as I rise out of the water in baptism, that I am being resurrected in that newness of life as I am following Jesus Christ. And so we identify with Christ in baptism. And so just as the children of Israel came out of Egypt to enter into a new covenant with God, they would cross the Red Sea, they would go to the mountain of God, they would receive the covenant from God, the law was given. We as Christians, we enter into that new covenant with Christ as we are delivered from Egypt. Uh, Egypt, of course, being a picture of the world. And now we identify with Christ 
as we pass through the waters of baptism. He goes on, Paul, and writes, verse 3, All ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What's Paul talking about here? Remember Exodus chapter 17. The children of Israel, they, they came across the Red Sea, and it was only a few days later, as they're out in that area called Rephidim, in the wilderness. It's hot, it's dry, it's, it's deserty, and they come to Moses and said, we're going to die of thirst out here. Why did you bring us out here in this desert, Moses? We're going to die and all our cattle are going to die. What are you going to do? And Moses cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, help me. These people are about ready to stone me. So God told Moses, take your rod, your staff, and strike the rock. And so that's what he did. He struck the rock, and as he did, water gushed forth, and the people drank, and they lived. And Paul says that rock was Christ. Interesting. What Paul is saying is this, is that the presence of Jesus was with the people of God back in the wilderness wandering. He was there, the presence of God, taking care of his people as he met their needs, as he would give them, of course, food from heaven that was manna, as he also would give them water that came from that rock. Now, it's interesting that 1,500 years later, after the wilderness experience, that in Jerusalem, when the, children, when the people of Israel gathered to celebrate one of their feasts called the Feast of Tabernacles, it was one of the major feasts that they would celebrate every year. It was also called the Feast of Booths, and that was because the Jews would commemorate and celebrate the fact that God had brought them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And while they were out there in the wilderness, God again providing for them manna that came from heaven, the water from the rock. Moses struck the rock. After that, he would simply speak to the rock. And the people would gather there in Jerusalem for this week-long celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was almost like a week-long campout is what it was. Because people would come to Jerusalem and they would set up these little booths, these little tabernacles, almost like a little tent. And they would sleep there for a week. And the fathers would tell their children how their forefathers slept under the stars for 40 years. How God provided for them and protected them and then eventually would bring them into the land of promise. And when they celebrated that feast at that time, it tells us there in John's gospel that on the last day of the feast, as the people are gathered there, see what would take place on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles as they were there celebrating the feast is the people would have these jars of waters. And they would pour out the water on the Temple Mount pavements. And what it did was it would commemorate. They would remember how God provided water for them during that wilderness experience. And then when they came into the promised land, that no longer did water come from that rock because they came into a land that had rivers and waters and a land flowing with milk and honey. But as they're pouring out that water, commemorating God's provision of water, that's when Jesus stood up. And he would cry out to the multitudes. He would say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow torrents of living water. Of course, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was speaking to them about, if you thirst, come to me. So the question this morning is, do you thirst? Do you thirst? 
Do you thirst in your heart? Do you thirst in your soul? Jesus says, come to me and drink. To the woman of Samaria, there in John chapter 4, as they're at Jacob's well, Jesus began to talk to her about living water. And he would say that if you drink of the water that I have to give to you, you'll never thirst again. But if you drink of this water, the water of the world, Jacob's well, you're going to be thirsty again. And you see, what can happen is, as we are thirsty, so many people go to the world to drink and drink and drink, and they're always thirsty in their hearts and in their souls. And what Jesus is saying to us is, I have living water to give to you, to be refreshed and renewed, to be satisfied and fulfilled. He would say the same thing in John chapter 6, as he said to the multitudes, as they came looking for Jesus after he fed the 5,000, and Jesus would say to them, you're only coming to me because you're hungry physically again, but you need to look to the one who can provide that food that comes from heaven. Our fathers ate of the manna in the desert. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again? 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.